Welcome to 52 Pearls, the weekly money wisdom podcast. I'm Melissa Joy, a certified financial planner and founder of Pearl Planning. And I'm joined by Melissa Friedenberg, Pearl Planning Financial Advisor. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. (laughs) You're never going to forget our names because, of course, we're both named Melissa, children of the 70s. So each week we provide a bite-sized actionable tip that we hope will help you make better financial decisions. The purpose of our podcast is to accompany our weekly financial tips, which we call 52 Pearls. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to sharing along the way. Hi, it's Melissa Joy here today, and I am so pleased to be joined by Christine Lucan, who is the financial lifeguard and founder of the Financial Dignity Movement. Christine is a certified financial counselor, speaker, and the author of Money is Emotional, Prevent Your Heart from Hijacking Your Wallet. She empowers her clients to rescue their financial dignity by creating a prosperity plan that decreases debt, increases savings, and directs spending to what's really important to them. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad that you're here. And as we explored the topics that related to both of us and we thought would be important to the listeners today, one thing stood out to both of us that we're talking about often with clients, but that we don't hear about much in financial media, which is the topic of financial shame. Yes. So I'm, I'm really excited to explore this topic because it's something that comes up in my conversations with new clients more and more. And I think that we really need to have a dialogue about what is financial shame and how can we address it. Absolutely. So in order to get started, I'd just love to hear a little bit about about your background, both professionally and personally, as to why you're so passionate about helping people with their financial decisions. Yeah, absolutely. So in my mid-20s, I crashed and burned financially, despite having an accounting degree. And I experienced this money shame firsthand. I knew what I should be doing with my finances. And yet, because of various factors, including being engaged to a guy who had terrible money habits, um, he was in and out of jobs and in and out of jail. And I thought if I just loved him enough that he would change. And he did, he got worse. <laughs> so, uh, you know, after being with him for seven years, I found myself uh, at age 26 having. Um, you know, a wedding dress in the closet and wanting to leave that relationship yet having no money to leave. And so I ended up having to move back in with my parents um, for several months, which of course, once you've graduated from college and are off on your own for a while, that feels like the worst thing in the world, you know, that you've, you've failed. In, uh, but I learned a lot through that process. And the big takeaway that I had is that money is emotional and it doesn't matter if we know the right things to do. There are emotional and psychological factors that can cause us to act counter to what's in our best interest. And what I have found is when this happens and we don't understand what's going on underneath the surface, we end up experiencing this shame. Shame makes us want to hide from the problem rather than to fix it. And so 
I do like to explain the difference between guilt and shame because I know a lot of times we kind of lump those two into the same category, but they they are different. So the way I would define guilt is when you do something wrong and you you recognize that. So guilt is I have done something wrong. I have done something bad. Shame is I am bad or I have done something wrong and therefore I am bad. So it's basically internalizing that mistake and saying, because I've done this, I'm a bad person. I'm a failure. Not I have failed, but I'm a failure. And it's a subtle difference, but it's a very important difference because we all make financial mistakes. I mean, I'm sure both of us would say, even now, there's some times where we do stuff with our money and we're like, well, why did I just do that? <laughs> of course, you, no one is perfect and everybody has an area that might be more sensitive or weakness or others may interpret as not the ideal way to make money decisions, but everything is personal. Absolutely, it sure is. Um, and so I am extremely passionate about this because I I have seen the uh, the toll it takes on people when they internalize this money shame and you know it erodes their confidence and they feel like i'm not good with money you know because i've made these mistakes i'm not good with money or i i can't be good with money like this is something that's unredeemable and so that's why i um, launched the financial dignity movement because i feel so strongly about this and i really want to educate other financial professionals about the emotional side of money so that they can recognize and they can they can spot this in their clients and they they can help get them from that place of money shame to financial dignity i want to revisit one of the things you said right off the bat which is that money is emotional because yes. so often if you are learning about money first of all it's not taught that often but when it is taught it's a dollars and cents exercise. So when you were in your accounting classes, you learned balance sheets, you learned cash flow, etc. But money is tied to our life. It's tied to possibilities within our life. It's something that you kind of learn about through the school of hard knocks, or maybe you are taught through a paradigm that your family passes along to you culturally. Yes. And it is so true that as a personal financial planner, the personal matters just as much, if not more, as the financial. And that Absolutely. goes back to that emotional connection and decision. It doesn't have to be irrationally emotional, but it's just something that, that you, you come to the table with more than just a list of accounts. Absolutely. That is so true. And I find it very interesting. Um, about a year after I published Money is Emotional, I came across this study that showed that it's impossible to make a logical decision. <laughs> and what they found was that the moment of decision happens in the same part of the brain that processes emotion. So we cannot take financial, we can't take emotions completely out of financial decision-making, but we can understand how the process works. You know, a lot of financial gurus will say, you know, if you don't like your results, 
then you need to change your actions. And here's this list of actions that you need to take. You know, people will embark and start trying to do these, these various actions and they might, you know, make some progress, but then they find themselves, you know, either not able to complete it or they find themselves backsliding and they end up saying, what's wrong with me, right? Especially if they see somebody else who has succeeded doing that, then they're like, well, what's wrong with me that, that they can accomplish this and I can't? It's important to understand that our actions are triggered by emotion. And so if we don't figure out all the predecessors that come before the action, you know, there's all these pieces that are missing. In order for us to really understand it, it's like the words that we say to ourselves, the thoughts that we think, our early experiences that happen in our lives trigger those emotions around our finances. And so I like to refer to that as the money blueprint. If I give you a blueprint to build a ranch house, you know, I don't care how hard you work or how fast you work or who you hire or what building materials you buy, you're only going to get a ranch house with that blueprint, right? You know, it's not until you go back and change the blueprint that you can get a two-story. Mm-hmm. So what I found is that there's a lot of people out there with the equivalent of a ranch blueprint who want a two-story financial house. And they're so frustrated because they are working over here with trying to change their actions, working harder, you know, trying to work smarter, et cetera. Paying debt more quickly, I think it's one where it's like, I'll, I'm going to fix this and then... <laughs> We're risking other things, yeah. <laughs> right, but it's like, you know, unless you go back and examine, you know, what you think about money, what you say about money, you know, how your parents handled money and some of your early experiences around money, your subconscious mind is so extremely powerful. And it's kind of ridiculous how little we talk about it. You know, it drives a lot of our behavior and we're not even aware of it. and so. If we don't start uncovering some of that stuff that's going on under the surface so that we can actually correct that blueprint and make sure we're building our financial house, you know, the way we want it to, that's the only way we're going to get to lasting change. I agree with you. I think we both tackle that challenge in different ways. So you offer courses or personal coaching where you're going to go back and visit all of that, oftentimes I refer to it as a backpack that you're carrying yeah. with you as you make your decisions. That's either light and helps you out and has all the tools that you need, or maybe it's filled with stones that really drag you down. For me, as a financial planner, we're going through the process of financial planning. We are doing some of those technical things, but I have conversations with people that typically make them comfortable to share their personal perspectives they're not hiring me to go and then look at what's in the backpack, but the conversations come up and I leave enough room where I often hear about the emotions of money and how they feel. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned was that people see other people, they see successful people, they benchmark themselves against those people. And that is a source of how they come to how they feel about themselves and they feel less Mm -hmm. than. And I think it's so interesting because oftentimes I know what's 
under the hood of the lives of those other people. And the other people may be feeling the same, or they may be what I call an upside down iceberg where all of their financial life is on, is, is there for their, um, their neighbors to see because it's all external, but under, you know, within their life, under the surface, there's no cash left at the end of the month, everything they're tapped out. And yet your client is benchmarking their worth based on what they're seeing from someone else. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, everybody has different life circumstances. Everybody is operating out of a different blueprint. And you are so right. I mean, I have, most of my clients make six figures. You know, I have coaching clients who come to me, you know, with $10,000, $12,000, $15,000 of spendable after-tax money. And then when I look at their net worth, it's, you know, there's, there isn't the proper correlation there, you know, right. it's You're like to see one thing and, and the, it's just not there. And then, you know, there's something going on behind the surface, <laughs> under the surface. Absolutely. Because I tell people more money will not fix your problems. More income will not fix your money problems. More income will magnify your current behaviors. So if you're, if, if you're spending everything that you make right now and all of a sudden you're making double, you're just going to spend up to that same amount, you know, unless you start diving into what is driving those behaviors to begin with. So, yeah, there's no right answer to how much somebody needs in terms of their balance sheet that you can judge based on external factors. It's all about them. So p- some people can make less than 100,000 as a dual income household throughout their life and have a wealth of savings where they actually can increase their spending in retirement because of their habits and decisions. And others can have made half a million dollars every year and they have more debt and no, almost no personal assets. They might, they might have barely anything, just a little bit in a retirement account. That is, that's the part of the iceberg, the under the surface that I, I like to explore with clients and and help them over time address both their confidence. And for me, I can help them to make decisions more confidently, but I can also help them to see for themselves that they there are many parts of their financial life that they're already doing a great job on. They just right. didn't, didn't have the affirmation to know. But yeah, what are your absolutely. strategies to help combat that shame or that identity around money that your clients come to you with? Yeah. So one of the things that I, that I tell people is that asking the, que- the question, what, what is wrong with me, isn't the right question. The right question to ask is, what happened to me? What happened to me in my past that is causing me to interact with my money in this way? So one of the things I say a lot is you have a relationship with money. If you think about it, we pretty much have to interact with money every day of our lives, right? You know, as soon as we are out of our parents' house, you know, we have to interact with money every single day. And so most people don't examine how am I interacting with my money? Um, How am I talking about my money? Um, Am I spending quality time? with my finances on a regular basis? Am I respecting my money? Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll ask women, I'll say, if I look in your purse, is there going to be dollar bills and change and receipts all wadded up like floating around in your purse? Or, you 
is your money folded up nice and neat and and put where it's supposed to be? You Don't know? look in my purse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nervous. <laughs> but so much of our life right now is cash isn't visible, right? It's an unseen account where you swipe True. a card. So when you think about the concept of money for people that are younger, they've never even lived in that world where you receive your paycheck, balance your checkbook, and always spent out of a more physically, a physical representation of money. Right. And sometimes it does help to get physically reconnected with mm-hmm. your money uh, for a short period of time. But I'm not someone that is anti-credit card or, you know, wants my clients to carry around huge wads of cash. Me neither. Uh, as long as there's not a credit card <laughs> issue, I find if you have lived in the world of relying on debt to get you from mm-hmm. one thing to the next where originally, you know, the things that you needed, you had to use credit and then it turned into the things that you wanted were also solved through credit, then you need you may need a detox time period. Yes. Before you establish a healthier relationship with credit or using credit cards just for month to month, not as a loan. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, And so one of the things that I highly recommend all of my clients do is we actually create the habit of a weekly date with money. I love that. Yeah. And so one of the things that I found is that if you're only looking at your finances once a month, you know, a lot of people say, you know, have a monthly budget meeting. Well, if you're only looking at stuff once a month, you can start to get off track pretty early in the month. And then by the time you get to the end of the month and you review everything, you've gotten so far off track that you feel discouraged. And then here comes that money shame again. Plus, you know, if you're only doing it once a month, it might take you an hour, right? To, you know, do all your bills, to check all your accounts, you know, file all your paperwork. So I have found that creating that weekly rhythm of spending 15 minutes on your finances. I mean, that's really all that it needs to be. You know, pay any bills that need to be paid, check your accounts. If you need to transfer some money to savings, go ahead and do that. Um, If you need to have a conversation with your spouse or significant other about, you know, anything that's out of the ordinary, just create that that rhythm. And when I say, you know, date night with money, it doesn't have to be on a Friday night. I typically do mine on Saturday mornings with a steaming cup of coffee. And I, you know, I put on some relaxing music, you know, have a nice scented candle, you know, I make it an enjoyable experience. Um, And I think when you, when you build in that weekly rhythm, it creates a nice balance of awareness without obsession. I don't think you need to check your accounts every day. Agreed. And there are things that need to be tended and maintained, but I would add, I always encourage people to schedule times on their calendar periodically throughout the year for things that may need to be revisited, but just once a year. So perhaps it's, you know, organizing your tax documents in February, reviewing your retirement savings around the same time that you receive a raise, Mm -hmm. looking at year-end tasks in November so you have enough time to get them done or make the decisions you need to make. So it might be nice if you plan that weekly kind of maintenance and there were a few times a year where you had a more in-depth review of certain things. And then also including your partner or spouse 
if you have one and you share money decisions, or perhaps you have given over your money decisions to someone else and it's time to take back the reins or at least inform yourself about what is going on, I certainly encourage people that knowledge should increase your confidence and comfort if you really, because of shame, felt like you just want to ignore all the money because it's so disconcerting. No, absolutely. And, you know, I know sometimes in couples, you know, one person primarily handles the day-to-day yep, um, transactions, but, you know, I encourage people to have those regular conversations. So, you know, it's something that my husband and I talk about on a regular basis. So, you know, it's like, oh, are we going to pay extra on the mortgage this month? It just comes up as a natural part of our conversation flow. And it is important to make sure that you are communicating with your spouse or partner. And if you are not the person that is primarily handling the day-to-day stuff, you should know where everything is, right? So if something happens to your spouse, you know, okay, the bills that need to be paid are always here in this spot. And, you know, I know how to get online and access the accounts. That is so critical for two reasons. First, what if something happens where you have to become the decision maker. But also, Mm -hmm. what if you assume that everything is taken care of? Maybe your partner comes to money with bravado and confidence and you personally don't feel that confidence. Perhaps you have a different take on risk and you don't want to wake up one day having assumed that everything's okay when in fact you had no idea that your the future that you plan for is not possible because of financial decisions. Mm-hmm. Because I've had circumstances where there were credit cards in someone's name and they had no idea that their spouse had been taking these out. There's yep. ties to a business that isn't doing well, or just there wasn't the type of savings that they thought was going on. So yeah. as a financial planner, I always require that both members of the family are involved in the conversations. It's not that they both have to be the decision maker if one prefers mm-hmm. the other, but it's an opportunity to remain informed. And of course, I think that there's a higher propensity for things kind of being checked off the list and taken care of if you are using professional services or if not, then you're taking it seriously and and you're hiring yourself to really get things done. Yeah, absolutely. And um, most of my clients, we get, we set them up on a spending app so that both of the clients can actually see in real time what's going on with their finances uh, relative to the plan. So that makes that's, sense. yeah. So I highly recommend using technology to help you stay on top of things, especially because we are moving away from spending with cash. And when you're spending on multiple credit cards and multiple accounts, so let's say, you know, you and your spouse both have a debit card, you've got one or two different credit cards that you're using it's hard for you to keep track of, well, exactly how much are we spending on eating out, right? right. If, you're, if you're spending on three or four different cards for eating out, even if you pay them off in full, you don't really know what you're spending on those kinds of things. And so that's why um, an app that aggregates all that information together can be really helpful. Yeah, I think that there are several things that can have an advantage. First, technology is your friend. Yes. For both of us having a conversation partner, adding an objective third party, you, Christine, or myself in different roles, that is 
an opportunity for people to refine their decision-making or change their relationship with money and also just pick up on opportunities that they may not be aware of. And then I always encourage people to think about things incrementally. So just like a diet, you don't say, hey, I'm going to lose 30 pounds and I've got a week to do it. Right. Changing habits, making decisions, mapping out goals over time, and not forcing yourself to completely alter your lifestyle all at once, but instead incrementally make better decisions over time is really where I find the compounding return of good financial decisions. Yeah. They're talking about. Well, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I feel like there are some extreme approaches out there that are similar to crash diets where they advocate very extreme changes in a short period of time. And unfortunately, what that teaches people is what I call binge and purge financial behavior. So if you're coming from a place of uncontrolled spending, you know, lots of debt, and then you move into this program that you know, you have to cut up your credit cards, you don't have any fun money, you know, you've got to eat beans and rice. By the time you finish the program, you haven't learned what healthy looks like. And it's so much better if we can take people. program. Exactly. It's so much better if we can take people instead of, you know, eight weeks or, or nine weeks, if we can take people over six months and say, okay, just do like these two or three things until we meet again. And then just do these two or three little things until we meet again. And then all of a sudden you look three or four or five months down the road and you're like, wow, look how far I've come. And it hasn't really felt that hard. I think that is a much better approach than something that's really extreme, both for your physical health and for your financial health. I'm smiling because I've seen that transformation and I've received that feedback of the power of looking at things incrementally and not expecting that you're going to come in as the coach and tell people how they're going to going to live their life. My goal right. is to give people choices, set up the choices that I think would be the most effective mm-hmm. and then have them make the decision to choose that. Yes. So that it's not they're not fitting into a template that I've created that everyone needs to look like this. Instead, we're just refining who they are with intention and choice and with information, both on the technical and personal side of financial decisions. Yes. No, I agree completely. In fact, I often say like, I am an option finder, right? So if, if we know that we need to free up $400 of income to start putting towards a particular goal, I'm going to find probably double that in options and say, okay, here's all the different things that we could do in order to come up with this $400. Now, I want the two of you to go back and talk about this over the next two weeks to say, which of these things aren't really important to us where it would feel really easy to just eliminate that because it's not that important to us? Um, Or maybe not even eliminate it. Maybe we just want to reduce our expenditures in this category by you know, 20% or 30%. But, you know, when we come back together, then they have chosen and they have committed and said, you know, these are the things that we want to change so that we can take this $400 and put it towards this goal that's really important to us. Because that gives people ownership. And I think that is really important. Ownership really is the key where you feel like financial decisions and circumstances aren't happening to you 
but that you have control over them. So I could talk about this all day because I think it really (laughs) is where the, it's where the hard work, where the wisdom really comes in to money and people. Absolutely. And it, we're only scratching the surface to the possibilities if more people would really address the emotional side of money as well as the nuts and bolts. I want to make sure that people can find you and some information that is useful. And you have been generous to offer the first three chapters of your book, Money is Emotional. We'll provide the link to that in our show notes, as well as you have a three-day mini course that you have. we have a link to and it's free. Yes. Do you have any additional places where people can find you? How can we keep track? Yeah. Well, the best place to find me is on my website and it's, it's just my name, christinelukin.com. Um, or you can go to moneyisemotional.com and you'll find me there as well. Um, I have a lot of great information, um, on bringing together the emotional side of money, plus the actual practical, tangible things that you need to do with your personal finances on my blog. So that's that's right up on the on the top of my website, and people can search for you know the particular financial issues that they're struggling with, whether it's debt or spending, or that's even great. just communicating with their partner. Thank you so much for this time, Christine. I hope that everyone who identified with the term financial shame once we described it feels the confidence that they don't have to have that feeling forever. Yeah. Have a great day. Hey, thank you so much.